another great day in the greatest nation on God's green earth. And what a great day the 4th of July holiday is. Whether it happens to be July 4th itself or the 5th of July, a time for celebration of American traditions. Fireworks, we've been celebrating the 4th with fireworks for a very long time. Barbecues, political oratory, celebrations of all kinds. And another American tradition, complaining about our two-party system. Now, you think it's a new thing for Americans to complain about the two-party system? Not hardly. We have been doing that and doing it with intensity and passion for 170 years. And the only reason we haven't complained about the two-party system for longer than that is that two-party system, as we know it today, has only been around for about 170 years. People are talking today about a third party. You hear it on the left, you hear it on the right, you hear it in the center. There's a great deal of dissatisfaction with the two established parties. And majorities of Americans, according to public opinion polls, would like to see a third party that had a viable chance, a real chance, of winning the presidency. Well, what can we learn from the very long history of third parties in this country. A history going all the way back to the presidential election of 1832 and including key candidacies in every era in our history. Unless we actually look at that and see some of the patterns, some of the elements that virtually all of these third parties have had in common, then we are in no position to talk seriously about the present and the future. And on this special broadcast, I want to speak with you about the true history, the sometimes shocking history, of third-party movements in America, and in particular, third-party presidential candidacies. Because those candidacies have a great deal in common, including, in many cases, an edge of the bizarre. And that has never been more true than it was with the first third-party candidacy for president in all of American history, a candidacy that was spawned by a murder conspiracy. Yeah, that's right. You have to go to Batavia, New York, a little town in upstate, to understand what I'm talking about. The year is 1826, and there is an itinerant bricklayer named William Morgan. He was reputed to have not been the most responsible guy in the world. He ran up a lot of debts. He also happened to be a royal archmason. His whole social life was with the Masonic order. But when he was running out of money, and he couldn't borrow any more money from his Masonic brothers, he had a bright idea. He was going to make money, pay off his debts, by publishing a book that described secret Masonic rituals. In fact, he took out a copyright on that book, and everybody knew it was coming in his town of Batavia. But guess what? Before the book appeared in print, he vanished. And there were some eyewitnesses who said that they saw some of his colleagues in the Freemasons who were escorting him into his carriage in 1826, and it is presumed that they ended up throwing his body into the Niagara River and murdering him.
Now, the Masons denied everything. I mean, the people in Batavia, the uh, entire notion that the Masonic order was really a murderous conspiracy seemed ridiculous to them, and they denied everything, but it didn't stop hysteria from breaking out throughout upstate New York. And all of a sudden, there were rallies that were fed largely by churches. A lot of the religious people at this time, and this was a time of religious ferment in upstate New York in particular anyway, took on the anti-Masonic activity as a kind of religious crusade. There were meetings and torchlight rallies throughout New York and New England and parts of the Midwest, what they called the Yankee Belt, where people also took religion very seriously. And all of a sudden, there were people who were getting up and pledging, never, ever again will we ever vote for a Mason for any political office. There was, in fact, a desire to ban, to outlaw all secret societies, starting with the Masons. Now, this had big political implications. You know why? Because the leading candidate for president at the time was a gentleman named Andrew Jackson, who was a ranking Mason, a high-ranking Mason, and spoke consistently and frequently about all the good things about the Masonic order. So all of a sudden, a bunch of ambitious politicians, seeing the genuine energy behind the anti-Masonic cause, said, you know what, we can capitalize on this. The National Republicans, the Adams men, the people who opposed Jackson, were weak in upstate New York. In fact, they were weak across the country. So instead of framing opposition to Andrew Jackson based on any other issues, they organized the anti-Masonic party. They elected members of Congress. They elected members of legislatures in seven states. They were a huge political phenomenon. Do you know that uh, William Henry Seward, later Secretary of State under Lincoln, began his political career in the anti-Masonic party? And so did Thaddeus Stevens in Pennsylvania. He was the leader of the anti-Masonic party. Later, he was the leader of impeachment against President Andrew Johnson. He made a speech in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, condemning the Masonic Grand Lodge. And this is not exactly the Gettysburg Address. It's just Thaddeus Stevens' Gettysburg Address. He said, The Masonic Grand Lodge is a chartered iniquity, within whose jaws are crushed the bones of immortal men, and whose mouth is continually reeking with human blood and spitting forth human gore. The Masons themselves are a feeble band of lowly reptiles who shun the light, and retire to midnight dens to perpetrate their blasphemies. Mr. Stevens, tell us how you really feel. I, I, frankly, it is absolutely astonishing how successful this party became, especially after Andrew Jackson was elected President of the United States in 1828 and was not about to apologize for his membership in the Masons. Now, what's interesting about this party is the first time in American history there was ever a national nominating convention was for the anti-Masonic party in 1832. They were absolutely convinced that they would be the main opposition to Andrew Jackson when he was running for re-election. And they went to a number of people to help them oppose Jackson. Who'd they go to first? Henry Clay, Senator 
former Secretary of State, former Speaker of the House. He had every qualification to head the anti-Masonic ticket, except for one little problem. He was a Mason. And uh, he considered his membership in the order a mere bauble. That was his phrase. But he thought it would be humiliating to retract his membership just to get the nomination of this rather well-organized party. So he declined. So instead, the anti-Masons went to a gentleman named William Wirt, W-I-R-T. He was a former attorney general. He'd served for 12 years as attorney general. He'd worked closely with Jefferson, a very distinguished Maryland, Virginia lawyer, an aristocrat, and a writer. He had written a very popular book, sort of an adventure book, called Letters of the British Spy. He'd also written a biography of Patrick Henry, bright guy, but very shy. And uh, the anti-Masons ap approached him, and... Uh, there was another problem with William Wirt. He was also a Mason. But that didn't matter. At this point, they were desperate for a candidate. They nominated him in September of 1831. And William Wirt absolutely refused to do much campaigning. In fact, after the National Republicans, another group, went ahead and nominated Henry Clay anyway, he said, let's, let's all get together. Let's all support Henry Clay. And he wanted to withdraw. The anti-Masons refused. It turned out that after a great deal of campaigning, the movement faded. We'll be right back with an even more bizarre campaign for the presidency involving a former president on a third party. You're listening to a special history broadcast of the Michael Medved Show. For a complete list of history shows, visit Medved History. You're listening to a special history broadcast of the Michael Medved Show. For a complete list of history shows, Visit MedvedHistoryStore.com. That rather grandiose music was written for a rather grandiose guy, Martin Van Buren. It's President Martin Van Buren's Grand March, written by a, a composer named John F. Gonnicky, while Van Buren was President of the United States in 1837. And Martin Van Buren illustrates one of the key factors in so many third-party races for President of the United States. When he won the presidency, he was no third-party candidate. He was the anointed successor of Andrew Jackson. He was the vice president, the sitting vice president. But when he came back later and ran as a third-party candidate, like so many other third-party candidates, it wasn't all idealism. A lot of it was ambition, jealousy, resentment, and desires for revenge. Now, Matty Van, as he was known, Martin Van Buren, he was also known as the Little Magician, the Red Fox of Kinderhook, had a lot of grounds for wanting to seek revenge. He had been absolutely trashed by his arch enemies, the Whigs, when he ran for re-election as President of the United States. Van Buren was a very poor kid who grew up the son of a tavern keeper, in the Hudson Valley of New York, and uh, always wanted to be a lawyer, wanted to be in politics, uh, made his, delivered his first uh, uh, legal summary when he was so short he had to actually stand on a bench to be seen. Van Buren was a poor kid, and yet when he ran for re-election as President of the United States, the Whigs portrayed him as some kind of aristocrat who was out of touch with the common people.
He hated that. And he was planning to make his comeback to run again against those Whigs in 1844. But at the last moment, he lost the Democratic Party nomination. He lost that nomination on the issue of the annexation of Texas. Van Buren, being from New York, wasn't, such a, wasn't so sure it was a, a good idea to make Texas part of the Union. He hesitated on that issue, so instead the Democrats turned to James K. Polk, and Van Buren went home to lick his wounds. But he was still a relatively young man. He had been Secretary of State. He had been Vice President of the United States. He had been Senator from New York. He, um, he was a distinguished guy terribly bright and a very clever machine politician in New York State. But he became out of office as he schemed to get back to the presidency more and more committed to the cause of blocking the extension of slavery. Now there are all kinds of ironies here because when Van Buren was president he didn't do anything to block slavery. In fact one of the aspects that uh, he became noted for was when the ship Amistad had a rebellion against it, when there were a number of slaves who were being transported in that ship who took it over and murdered the captain, murdered some of the people. Van Buren was very unpopular with anti-slavery people because he wanted the Amistads, as they were known, these rebellious slaves, to be uh, returned to Cuba, where they would live out their lives as slaves. He, he opposed freedom for the Amistads. So he was no abolitionist, but more and more he became concerned that the slave power was gaining power, and in any event, it was good politics. Remember, this was a guy who was known as the Little Magician, Old Kinderhook. In fact, okay, that, that expression came from the fact that he used to approve documents by signing them with the initials okay for Old Kinderhook. He did that when he was president. In any event, he's now scheming to get back into the presidency. And all of a sudden, after the Mexican War, when there's all kinds of new territory added to the United States, not just Texas, not just California, but all of what later became oh, Utah and parts of Wyoming, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, when all that territory came in, it became a very hot issue as to whether slavery would be extended to that territory. There was one member of Congress from Pennsylvania named David Wilmot who introduced the Wilmot Proviso saying, hey, we want to block slavery from ever coming in here. And Van Buren, seeing that that was in a more and more popular position in the North, became more and more outspoken in support of that position. No slavery into the new territories that have been won in the war with Mexico. And he had a huge war with other members of the New York State Democratic Party who felt that uh, you had to be more flexible on this. Why? Because the Democratic Party had very, very strong support on the South. And uh, if you, you all of a sudden wanted to alienate those Southern Democrats, the party would split up and they'd never win anything. And the Democrats were eager to keep control of the White House. Polk was retiring. He had term-limited himself. He was leaving. Van Buren wanted the Democratic nomination, but he had really no chance of getting it because of the fight in New York. The two factions in New York were called the Hunkers and the Barn Burners. Van Buren's group was the Barn Burners. They were called Barn Burners because they were willing to burn down the barn in order to get rid of the rats, the rats being the people who would cooperate with slavery. The Hunkers 
were those who were just hunkering after office. They didn't really care. And when it came time for the National Convention, there was such a fight between the hunkers and the barn burners as to who should represent the state of New York at the National Convention that the National Convention did the normal thing. Say, oh, you can both come in. Well, that was totally unacceptable to former President Van Buren. He walked out with his people, and he assembled a new party. Did it in three months. Called it the Free Soil Party. Why would he be so crazy to run on a third-party candidacy, pledging free speech, free labor, free men, free soil? Why would he do that? This is another element that so many of these third-party candidacies have in common. He thought if he could carry the state of New York, if he could carry maybe the state of Pennsylvania, maybe some of the New England states, he'd have enough votes so that no one would get a majority in the Electoral College. And under the Constitution, what happens then is it goes to the House of Representatives, and they choose the president. And Van Buren felt that he had friends in the House of Representatives. He might have a chance, and in any event, he would help to be a kingmaker if it got thrown to the House. So he campaigned, and he campaigned enthusiastically and passionately. This is 1848. The previous anti-slavery candidacy had been a tiny little candidacy for something called the Liberty Party. It got only 60,000 votes. Van Buren got 291,000 votes. He got 10% of the vote. So not bad. But he didn't carry a single state. And what happened? He was able to kill the Democratic candidate, a senator from Michigan named Lewis Cass, and throw the election to a slaveholder from Louisiana. His name was Zachary Taylor. Oh, yeah, and Zachary Taylor also was the former father-in-law of a senator from Mississippi named Jefferson Davis. So here you have another pattern. All of the free soilers, and they did elect some uh, seven members of Congress, including a new senator from Ohio, Salmon P. Chase. They were elected under the Free Soil Party, so it was somewhat successful. But what did they really achieve in this campaign? They achieved electing someone who was even more supportive of slavery, the Whig candidate, Zachary Taylor, and defeating the slightly more anti-slavery Democratic candidate, Lewis Cass. And they also succeeded in ending, finally, Martin Van Buren's political career. But the next major third-party candidate had a real chance of winning. He was also a former president and maybe came closer to making a real run than any other third-party candidate ever. This is... Party races for president almost always have some element of fiery idealism behind them. With the anti-Masonic party in 1832, the idealistic impassioned cause was against secret societies trying to purge America of conspiratorial elites. Some people may still be hoping to do that. In the uh, Free Soil Campaign, Martin Van Buren's Free Soil Campaign of 1848, the big driving cause was opposition to the expansion of slavery. And the next big third party in American history, because uh, as far as the Free Soilers were concerned, with Van Buren gone, they went down from 10% of the vote to just 5% of the vote and became less and less of a factor. 
the next big cause to inspire a third-party movement that was spectacularly successful was nativism, was opposition to immigrants, a feeling that immigrants were overrunning America and destroying the American way of life. There were a number of secret societies that initially came to agitate to try to keep America for Americans. And what they meant was Protestant, Anglo-Saxon Americans. And the resentment was really directed against Catholic immigrants, particularly from the Bavaria section of Germany, and above all, from Ireland. Now, a number of these organizations were called the Sons of America, the Druids, the Order of United Americans. Then they uh, organized in the 1850s, under the title, The Order of the Star-Spangled Banner. And eventually, they coalesced into something called the American Party, which was popularly known as the Know-Nothings. They were called Know-Nothings because there was a secret element to this party. They were so afraid of popish conspiracies that, uh, as Horace Greeley reported, whenever you ask them about, well, what is your party really about, members... Organizers were supposed to say, we know nothing. So Horace Greeley began to refer to them as the know-nothings. They may have known nothing, but they sang a lot and had some of the best campaign songs of any third party. fight against usurpation. The whole theme of this nativist idea was that uh, there is a conspiracy, worldwide conspiracy, centered on the Pope of Rome, determined to take over the uh, most powerful Protestant government on earth, the United States of America. They believed the church to be the ally of tyranny and reaction in Europe and the enemy of freedom and democracy everywhere. There was a New York anti-Catholic weekly called The Protestant, and Samuel Morse, the same guy who invented the telegraph, was also a distinguished painter, began to promote an influential anti-Catholic book that he wrote called A Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States. It went through numerous editions. He urged Protestants to unite against the Catholic menace. Morse advocated much stricter immigration laws, quote, to stop this leak in the ship through which the muddy waters from without threatened to sink us. Now, they incited anti-Catholic riots, killed people, burned two major churches in Philadelphia, and tragically burned the Ursuline Convent School in Charlestown, Massachusetts, killing some kids. These were pretty tough and mean guys, but they had huge political success in 1854 and 1855. In those years, they became a prominent party in the House of Representatives they won seven governorships, seven, four New England states plus Maryland, Delaware, and Kentucky, all elected know-nothing governors. They had such an overwhelming legislative majority in the legislature of Massachusetts that they were 
basically able to do what they wanted in that state. And what they wanted was to make it impossible for any naturalized citizen to ever run for office and to require 21 years of residence in the United States before you became a citizen of this country. Meanwhile, they were ready to make a run for the presidency. All they needed was someone sufficiently prominent. They found that someone with a respected former president who in 1856 stood a real chance of throwing the two-party system into chaos with perhaps the most serious of all third-party campaigns for the presidency in the United States. I'll tell you about it right after this. This is the Michael Medved Show. You're listening to a special history broadcast of the Michael Medved Show. For more history programs, go to medvedhistorystore.com or become a medhead at michaelmedved.com and check out our new history podcast for premium members called In Light of History. of any third-party campaign is a cause, idealism, wanting to change America on one burning issue, whether it's combating secret societies like the Masons for the anti-Masonic party, or whether it's stopping the extension of slavery, which was the idea of the Free Soil Party in 1848, or whether it's combating the dangers of a Catholic conspiracy and the dangers of immigrants, particularly those from Ireland and Germany, polluting America, which was the overriding cause of the American Party or Know Nothing Party in the election of 1856. But there's another element for every third party, and that is, if it's going to be successful at all, Getting some prominent person involved with a little bit of edge of personal ambition, jealousy, resentment. The prominent person for the know-nothings for the American party was former President Millard Fillmore. Now, I know Millard Fillmore's name has become something of a joke. He was only president for two years. Uh, he took over the presidency after President Zachary Taylor died. And Fillmore actually did a fairly creditable job. He helped to push through the Compromise of 1850 to help uh, avoid the Civil War, perhaps, the war between the states from breaking out ten years earlier than it did. But he did not get the nomination of the Whig Party for a term in his own right in 1852. He was disappointed at that. But maybe it was better that he didn't get the Whig Party nomination because the Whigs were absolutely falling apart. They were falling apart over the issue of slavery. Southern Whigs and some Northern Whigs, more conservative Whigs, didn't want to talk about slavery. Then there was also a conscious, conscience Whigs wing of the party who wanted to talk about nothing else. So by 1852, the party had largely fallen apart. By 1856, it had completely ceased to exist. It wasn't there anymore. No more Whigs. What had happened was some of the more conservative Whigs, like Fillmore, had fallen into the Know Nothing Party. And that's why you had a full 75 members of the House of Representatives who were identified as Know Nothings. 
they didn't want to talk about slavery. They thought that debates about slavery would simply lead to the Union breaking apart. They much preferred to talk about a much greater menace, in their view, to the Republic, and that was America being deluged by cheap labor, by immigrants who would cut down the wages of the working man, and ruin Protestant they felt God-given culture in the society by planting Catholic schools and Catholic ideas. They got President Fillmore involved very directly in running for president for one simple reason. They felt they were the only hope to protect the country against a new menace. That new menace was the Republican Party. Now, the Republican Party was never a third party. It never was. To order this... You're listening to a special history broadcast of The Michael Medved Show. For a complete list of history shows, visit medvedhistorystore.com. Now, the Republican Party was never a third party. It never was. It started putting up candidates only in 1854, literally months after people first coined the name Republican. There were former Whigs, former Free Soilers, former Democrats. They came together on one principle, no extension of slavery into Kansas and Nebraska. And they organized quickly. In the congressional elections of 1854, they were a second-place party already. And the first time they ever put a candidate for president in place was 1856, and he was clearly going to carry a lot of the northern states. As it turned out, John C. Fremont carried all the northern states except for four of them and almost won that election. So what was the role of Fillmore and the American Party? They felt that people who didn't want to agitate on slavery, if they were pro-slavery, they would vote for the Democrats and the Democratic Party candidate James Buchanan in Pennsylvania. If they were anti-slavery, they'd vote for Fremont and the Republicans. But if they wanted merely to support all-Americanism and sectional compromise, and cooler heads and preserving the Union, they would vote for Fillmore the Wise. carry any states in the South. He knew he couldn't win a majority in the Electoral College, but once again, there was this old idea that if he could carry enough states, and remember, there were seven know-nothing governors, 
If he could carry enough states, he'd throw the election from the Electoral College, because no one would get a majority, into the House of Representatives. And there, people would be so eager to avoid sectional conflict, to avoid electing Fremont and splitting the union, that they'd go for Fillmore. So it was not a ridiculous plan at all. As it turned out, he did very well in the election. He came back from a grand tour of Europe, President Fillmore, who had grown up in upstate New York, had been a distinguished lawyer, had been an anti-Mason. That's how he first got in politics. When he arrived, he was greeted by a gigantic political demonstration. He arrived from his grand tour of Europe. It was staged by the American Party. Followers greeted him with a key to the city and an invitation to return to the White House to remove, according to the New York Express, the vermin that have gathered there during his unfortunate absence from the national helm. He didn't actually do that. He only carried one state, the state of Maryland, for eight electoral votes. But in a general election that ended up being uncomfortably close between Buchanan and Fremont, Buchanan had even better campaign songs, by the way, because his brother-in-law was a guy named Stephen Foster. But Fillmore did manage to carry some 21.6% of the votes. He got 871,000 votes, carried the state of Maryland. If a couple of states, Pennsylvania and, say, Indiana, had switched, Fremont would have been elected. Or perhaps if there had been a change of votes in some other states, Fillmore might have gotten the votes that he needed to throw it from the Electoral College to the House. As it was, what he ended up doing is electing a, another enemy, his enemy here was James Buchanan, and the American Party very soon collapsed because its concerns paled in comparison to the agonizing issue of slavery, which inspired more party splintering all its own. I'll tell you about it right after this. This is the Michael Medved Show. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. America's favorite doll, played by Margot Robbie, lives a perfect life in Barbie land. But then she takes a perilous venture into the real world in Barbie. Now playing in theaters. Wow, this is the real world. What's going on? Why are these men looking at me? Yeah, they're also staring at me. If this got out, this would be catastrophic. That's Will Ferrell, who's genuinely funny as the ruthless head of Mattel Toys, trying to catch Barbie and put her back in a box. Directed by Greta Gerwig, who co-wrote the project with her partner Noah Baumbach, this is an often amusing film, but the final one-third is a disappointment, with Barbie's erstwhile sweetie Ken, played by Ryan Gosling, leading a revolution in Barbie land, where the Ken dolls try a takeover in the name of patriarchy. Rated PG-13 for a few references to human anatomy. Two and a half stars for Barbie, and yes, Margot Robbie is a living doll in her role. Check out a long list of history shows at medvidhistorystore.com. Let all our hearts for union be for the North and South are one. They work together manfully and together they will still work on. Then Talking about third parties, when people say 
in America that they are all fed up with our two-party system. They often say, wouldn't it be great if we in the United States could be like European countries with three, four, or maybe even five or six different viable parties, all of which had a chance to win the top office, to win the presidency. You know what I say to people like that? We had a situation like that. One election in the United States where we had four different candidates for president, all of whom were distinguished individuals, all of whom were highly qualified, all of whom got big chunks of the vote. The vote was divided four ways between Abraham Lincoln of Illinois, the Republican candidate, Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois, the Democratic Northern candidate, John C. Breckinridge, the sitting vice president. He was the Southern Democratic candidate. And John Bell of Tennessee, longtime senator from Tennessee, running in the Constitutional Union Party. They all got at least 10% of the vote. They all won electoral votes. Wasn't it terrific? It led to civil war. It led to 600,000 dead Americans. Uh, the, the results of political fissures, of third parties, of moving away from the two-party system, have never been good in this country. There are reasons for it. In 1860, the country simply could not agree on this slavery issue. There were some people who supported the Abraham Lincoln position, which was not that all the slaves should be freed. It was that slavery should not be allowed to be extended at all into the territories. Abraham Lincoln won 39.8% of the vote and got elected president because the votes were so split among his three opponents. The result was the bloodiest war in our history. Understanding that history, understanding some of the reasons that no third-party candidacy has ever really worked the way it was meant to, will help to cast light on the present and on the future and help us all to be informed voters and political participants keeping this and making this the greatest nation on God's green earth as the story of America's third parties marches forward. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. Based on 30 hours of intimate interviews, the superb PBS documentary, Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words, allows the Supreme Court Justice to tell his remarkable story just as he had narrated to family members or close friends. His recollections come alive through expertly edited still photos and film footage showing his rise from desperate poverty in the segregated South to appointment to the nation's highest court. His confirmation process, nearly derailed by last-minute, clearly dubious charges by one-time aide Anita Hill, makes for riveting viewing, highlighting a much younger Joe Biden's bumbling role as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The two-hour film is rated PG-13 for some of the salacious aspects of Anita Hill's testimony, but viewers of all ages will feel inspired by the heartfelt patriotism and deep religious faith that allow Justice Thomas to transcend every obstacle. Created equal, a mess for the getaway.